You're listening to Leadership Game Changers, conversations with heart and humor. Thank you for being here with me. I have a wonderful guest for you, super interesting today. Her name is Iveta Clark. I met her many years ago, the first time she participated in a European leadership program that I was facilitating a part of. And then later on, we coincided in London in a course called Parentology, which was coaching skills for parents. Uh, she made an impression on me. She's wise and intuitive and sensitive. And she's one of those people that when you talk to her, you think, ah, oh, she's got something. She's got something magical. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's like it's captivating. Iveta is an influencer, a leader. She's a certified facilitator of Dare to Lead. She spent the last decade working intensively with Brene Brown, bringing her world-renowned research around vulnerability and courage to the business world. She holds a graduate degree in economics and has extensive corporate international experience. In this podcast, we talk about normalizing the imposter syndrome that's so talked about today, what it means to embrace our imperfections, choosing courage over comfort, the powerful and interesting dance between vulnerability and trust. And is there such thing as too much vulnerability? We look at truth-telling and courageous conversations, and she talks about her Appaloosa, her horse, as a teacher. There is lots of wonderful and useful stuff for you in this interview. So let's go meet Iveta. All right. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, Michelle. (laughs) Okay. So um, first question is, what do you want the audience or the listeners to know about you before we we dive into talking about Brene Brown? Um, Well, there's one important thing that I'd like to say, and that is that I have reached a midlife. Which is, a, which is an interesting and exciting uh, part of our lives. And I think it says it all because something's shifting. You know, people who, who are in that period, they know exactly what I mean. Those who are younger, they, they might wonder. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so midlife is a very rich kind of ground where uh, what I mean by shift is that uh, we start looking at the journey rather than the goal and to, we kind of pause and we slow down in many ways and that slowing down doesn't mean that we get lazy. Mm-hmm. There's, there's lots more going on and, and I guess that's, that's the best way to describe where I am right now in, you know, in this midlife session of my life. Yeah, thank you because I can absolutely relate. I think you and I may be similar in age and what I know from my own experience is in slowing down, you also get more, uh, become more conscious about what you choose, mm. who, you, who you choose to spend time with, what you say yes to. Um, it's, it's like you suddenly become, at least for me, more mindful of how I'm spending the hours of my life. Yes, and, and, and it is logical, right? Uh, it, you know, we sense that, the, the time is not a commodity that's here forever. And so we just become wiser in how we choose our priorities and how we choose every minute of our lives. And, uh, and that's why I say this, this is a great characteristic, you know, because um, we, yeah, that slowing down doesn't mean that I'm slowing down. It really means I'm creating a space to decide what's my next move. 
Mm, yeah. So before we dive into your work with Brene Brown, is there anything you want to say about that? Because starting off with that has me wonder, are you doing work or what kind of work are you doing with others who mm -hmm. are in, there in that midlife stage? Do you want to say something about that before we move on to Brene? Yeah, I don't necessarily work only with people in midlife, uh, although the trend is here and you know, we are all facing the aging population. But what I'm noticing in the context of uh, <clears throat> midlife and work of Brené is that people get wiser and they get to, they, they know themselves better, you know, in, in the reflection of their lives up to, up to the present point. And in that moment, when people start reflecting, you know, when they can look back at their adult life, usually, I, you know, I strongly believe that people grow up and become adult when they are 40 plus, because that's the time when we can actually stand up and say, what was that like to be adult for the last 20 years? And, and then, so it's, it's not a coincidence that we start kind of shaping our new way of living when we are in the you know, mid forties or something like that. And that, in a connection with Brené, I feel that people look at their, their own uh, sort of habits and positions in life and they say, what if I change that? What if I, what if I become what I always wanted to become? And I think that what Brené does with her work is give people tools and language to actually start embracing some of these changes that people wish for. Yeah, so you've worked with Brene or you've trained with her, have known her and worked with her material for years now. Mm -hmm. yeah, so yeah. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, well, well, it was an, interest, an interesting coincidence or synergy, if you will. Uh, I don't know. I think it's about eight, nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago. I'm not very precise there. But um, when somebody sent me... Uh, her TED talk from Houston. That was the very first talk she did. And I remember sitting in my office and doing some work, uh, some reflection on a client that I was working with. And all of a sudden this video landed in my inbox and I started watching it and it was completely, completely synchronized with the work that I was doing with my client, with his topics. And so I'm thinking, wow. And she made a lot of reference to her research. So I'm thinking, how do I get how do I get more on that research? And at that time, I was thinking more about how do I buy the research? You know, how, how can I get my hands on, you know, how she measures, how she works as a sociologist. And so I send a note or email to her. And somebody replied to me that there is the certification on shame uh, resilience curriculum. And I should come to San Antonio to learn about it. And so I did. And that's how I kind of got involved with her work, with her personally, and experiencing her not only as a researcher, but also as a, as a teacher, but also as a human being who is actually living what she's talking about. So that's how the cooperation started. So tell me a little bit more about what it's been like to apply this in your own life or, or live what she was talking about. Hmm. It is not, you know, we, we both know that things that are happening around us that we look at as impulses are usually something that triggers us in some positive way and you know, responds to something or mirrors something in us. 
And so it was with me and Renee as well, and as many millions of people that follow her work. Um, to me, the question was not really about vulnerability. It was more about how do I, how do I build resilience to my own smallness? Uh, you know, despite all the achievements that we have as, as humans, as intelligent human beings, you know, starting with education, going through success in life professionally and in relationships, I felt I have all that, but there was still this uh, this doubt, of course, that, that that we all have and we call in a different way as a saboteur or imposter syndrome or shame. And what I loved was that not only she talked about it, but she also normalized it. And, uh, and, and there was a tool or, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how else to say it. There was a tool that was coming out of the research, which is how do I get to know my triggers? How do I get to uh, understand my preferred and desired identities that are usually when they are not coming or when, when I'm not living them, they cause me to, to go into the shame trigger. How do I learn my own inner language about shame? Who are the people I can talk to about them? What is my language? How do I express that? How do I build that sensitivity to find people that I connect with? And uh, so, so these were some of the very practical things that, that go beyond the theory of, a, of an imposter syndrome or, or a shame. And so I started applying them because I was thinking, if I, if I wanna offer that to my audience, I need to understand how they work. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of, you know, like when I stand in front of people and present something on shame, uh, I've been there, I've done it. The work is never finished. It's a continuous process. And that's what makes us human beings. But at the same time, I've got to prove. There's something you can do. You can improve from zero to five. And if your goal is then fine, you're in the middle and you can still continue working on it. But there is a, there's a foundation for us getting better, feeling better about ourselves, accepting our uh, uh, imperfections in a way that, that embraces. So a lot, a lot of people who listen to this podcast, they're, they're either managers or they're coaches. Um, how would you, or what, what tips would you have for them to help their clients or their teams embrace imperfection mm -hmm. and be able to talk about uh, things that initially they wouldn't because there's shame. Mm -hmm. how, how could they bring more of this work into their day-to-day -day work? And I'm sure if I speak to the coaches, um, listeners, coaches right now, I'm sure that this is our daily situation, right? That we, at the end of the day, no matter how, successful the client is you know on a the surface there is this little fear about being found out that he's not as great as everybody thinks and you know that next promotion is gonna is gonna be the the doom uh, of his career because now he's reaching the ceiling of his own competency and um you know what if now he's gonna just fall from the top and what if now he's not gonna be able to deliver as he did in the past. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, Michelle, but I am looking, I'm, I'm working with people who go exactly through that situation where they, 
barely reach success in the new role and immediately after that they are promoted and they don't have time to breathe and celebrate their success and they go into another challenge and so we feel like we're constantly challenged in proving the best and i think what the paradox is that we live in a world especially in corporations where it's not okay to be enough you need to be best you need to be better. You need to over deliver, you know, delivery on 100 percent. It's that's what's expected. Uh, so being enough is not acceptable in, in many corporate cultures. And so so this is a this is an oxymoron for many people. When I say, you know, how, what does it look like when it's enough? When it's enough for you, you know, what what what's in a place when when you can say that about you? So. Back to your question, um, I would say coaches, educate yourself, do some, do some uh, supervision around, uh, you know, I'm okay, you know, I'm not okay, you are okay, you know, like use some of those tools that we all know, let's say from transactional analysis, work on your saboteurs, because I think that, you know, you know, the quality of the intervention really is depending on the quality of the of the intervener, right? I mean, so so instead of giving people tools about what to say and what questions to ask, I'd say, at least to me, the most beneficial tool is how do I work with that? How do I recognize what's happening to me? How do I stay present with it? How do I face it? And then it's great to educate yourself. Even you know, you could use the books of Brené where she where she talks about desired identities i think that's a fantastic tool you know just to ask people you know what do you what do you project about yourself you know like like what kind of what kind of manager or leader you want to be what kind of father you want to be how do you want your kids to perceive you and people start coming with things like i really want to be cool father you know and i really want to be friendly and i i want to give them a lot of freedom and and all of a sudden you find yourself as a father giving your kids rules and you know you manage their territories so you give them a no-nos and then you go wow and this is not the kind of father i want to be so so that discrepancy between our desired identities and what we need to do in life are, are a good place to look at because that's what's causing our shame to show and then what i find really really helpful is that in brenna's work in, in her early work, she speaks about 12 categories of shame, which is something that people don't realize. And that's where, that's where uh, the notion comes from that, you know, I, I see you and I work with you and I say, gosh, Michelle doesn't feel any shame. She's so, you know, self-confident and competent and easy with things. I don't know anything about you because your shame could be in a completely different category than mine. So, so you know, like if my shame is about my looks and about my body shape or about my, you know, sex orientation, your sex could, uh, your uh, your uh, shame could be about you know how much money you're making, uh, what, what family you, what family you come from, what kind of parent you are. So I would advise look at those categories and find out what's the one where you go. I mean, aging is one of them, yeah. uh, speaking about midlife. So, so to me, that's a very kind of practical thing when the client identifies on what are the categories in which I get to feel sm small in my life and uh, start there. And, uh, 
And I love the, um, the difference, you know, the research showed, and we're talking about shame research here. The research showed that the difference between people who, who live in shame or, or are triggered by shame a lot and people who live this wholehearted life is that they both understand that they are not perfect. They both see their imperfections, but the ones that are living uh, the wholehearted life or are more shame resilient, those are the ones who say, this is actually what makes them great. That, that what makes them unique, that what makes them fun, that what makes them, you know, whole. Yeah. And that belief difference is what is the difference that, that we need to help our clients to achieve and ourselves. Yeah, it makes all the difference in the world. It's a perspective shift. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, tell me about a moment with her work that really touched your heart. Hmm. I remember, I remember uh, uh, reading, uh, uh, reading her book, Braving the Wilderness, um, which is not a book that's talked about, really. But to me, it was the most impactful book because out of all the material that I have learned from Brené, this one really spoke to me. And this whole book is about uh, how do I stand alone in a bubble of people that might have certain opinion that are same as mine, but I differ all of a sudden. So how do I stand alone with my uniqueness, my way of doing things and of course being aware of my impact as we both know from from coactive but but how do i find the courage to stand alone and uh, so so it's not really about leading other people or trying to motivate them to follow it's really about how do i find that that strong back in me and that soft front and the burning heart that i have the wild heart to actually stand in situations where I don't agree with many people, even they are, even if they are my friends and they are in my social bubble, and uh, I still am working on that. You know, it's 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 part of that work that I'm still processing, because it's uh, to me an ultimate courage. You know, how people can stand up for themselves, knowing that they might be the only ones. Yeah, you know, because research has shown that the most absolutely most important thing for a human being is to feel like we belong and standing alone, standing up for something. That's true. Yeah. Is stepping on that kind of vital need we have yeah. to, to have a sense of, of belonging. So when is a moment that you chose courage over comfort? <sighs> Yeah, that's a that's a question that we could uh, spend uh, the whole podcast on. <laughs> but uh, you know, you know, courage to me, and because I work with courage for so long, I obviously am paying a lot of attention to where I see courage around me and in me. But what I'm noticing is courage shows up in small life moments. So it's not just something big that I start a big project and you know I, I hugely impact the world. It's more uh, uh, like a subtle sense of decision that I make, speaking up somewhere. A, a little story, not, not, to, not to make this a long answer, 
I was in a metro and uh, with me in the car was this very young mother uh, with the carriage and her baby was crying out loud. And I could see people in the, in the train kind of shaking their head. It is like this, you know, atmosphere of disapproval and criticism about, you know, what kind of mother you are that you cannot silence your child, get out of this train and don't disturb me in listening to my music. You know, I felt that kind of in a level three, you know, that's what's happening. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, Iveta, so what are you going to do about it? What are you really going to do about it? And it was interesting because I was just delivering a workshop on shame. And, I, you know, I had all the material in my head. And Michelle, at some point, I, I saw myself standing up, walking towards that lady. Because, you know, I watched her for five minutes to desperately try to keep this baby quiet. You know, and she did everything every mother would possibly do. And the, the child just wouldn't stop. And so I walked to her across the train and I can see all these people looking at me. And I look at me and I'm going, what the hell am I doing? And next thing I know, I, I touch this girl on the shoulder and I say, you're doing what you can. And we all have been there. Stay in, sister. Oh, and she turned to me in disbelief. I could see a tear coming from the corner of one of her eye. She just couldn't believe it. And we both had this moment of, you know, you know how it is when you sometimes com connect with complete stranger and just this exquisite moment. And so we kind of stood there. It took forever, but it was probably a nanosecond that the child stopped crying. Oh, wow. And I watched myself walking back to my chair across the train. And then uh, when I got to the station, I picked up the phone and I called my husband and I said, I just did the most courageous thing in my life. And I don't know if it's a courage, but th these are the things, you know, like when you speak about comfort, the comfort is to do things that the other people did, which is, you know, I wait for the train to stop. I leave the, the car and I move to a different car. I move myself away from that noise. And, you know, if I should generalize that experience, I don't want to move myself away from the noise when I see one. And, it, you know, that experience proved to me that I can do it. It's absolutely in my power. And all I need to do is that moment of decision to get it. And you know what? It served me. Yes, it impacted her, of course. And yeah, great. But the purpose is not to serve other people. The purpose is to step on the boundary that we lay for ourselves and see if we can cross it because we feel so much stronger. And, you know, I, I now have a tangible proof that I can stand up for our people, for other people. I can be gentle with that and I don't have to be afraid. It's a beautiful story. I love that. Thank you. you I, I felt emotional listening to you. <laughs> so tell me a little bit as we were going deeper into the impact that Brene Brown's work has had on you. Um, how has it impacted your work with your clients? You know, what did you, what have you noticed over time working with this with your clients? Well, first of all, it's, uh, it's like a attraction uh, circle. All of a sudden I find a lot of clients who are coming with a request and how do I build my courage? 
uh, what's that about vulnerability that that I'm missing? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I am missing in my life by pretending I'm not vulnerable. I think that's the best way to describe it. And uh, so, so the first impact is that it's a, the topic is much more alive in a society than I ever thought it was. But what I'm also noticing, I started working with this uh, material, uh, let's say, you know, nine years ago, and it's a continuous process. And at the time in my country, uh, there was not much interest about, you know, what's vulnerability and let's talk about shame. And so that gave me a little bit of time to get deeper and get the material into my bones and translate it into my culture, which is an important point because Brenner's research is on American society in American communities and not everything's translatable. So how do I take the general material and absolutely nail it down in my own vocabulary. I think that's, that was my challenge. And work with my clients is helping me shape that because what I do is I ask their stories mm -hmm. and, and I notice the words they use. And then I'm thinking about what Brené uses and what stories I hear and I kind of collate them together. And uh, so, so I'm speaking about what impact it has on Brené's work in Czech, right? But, the impact on clients is that uh, there is an open conversation or dialogue all of a sudden that they can have with me, but then they can have with their teams, that they can have with the family members, with their loved ones. So it's like spreading the normalness of let's have that conversation. And I see more and more companies who would like to participate in their three program, who are really gathering their teams around, what does it mean for us to be vulnerable and when it's appropriate and to what extent we can actually apply it in our workplace. So um, it's, it's the dare to lead work that I use now to not only speak to the individuals, but bring it to their environments and to their systems. Yeah, you know, I, I work with vulnerability also um, in, in trainings. I challenge leaders to be the first to be vulnerable, to, to open up a space and create psychological safety for other people to tell their stories and, and be vulnerable. It is, there's a kind of contagion, right? When, when someone goes there. Um, do you believe there's such thing as too much vulnerability in the workplace? Can there, can a line be crossed? And where is that line? Yeah, that, 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 that's interesting that you ask that because uh, what I am noticing recently when we speak to, you know, when I work with, you know, the executives, uh, you know, the guys were really on the top. Yes, they have other bosses, you know, being shareholders. But, but those are the guys who are ultimately shaping the culture of, a, of an institution or a, or a company. And one of them recently told me that they had this uh, sort of like a team, leadership team gathering. And based on the work he does with me, he opened up. And he opened up first. And he got no reciprocity. It didn't work. Wow. Ouch. Yeah. And that's where, you know, like that's where people go back and say, what, what did I do for God's sake? Jesus, how do I stop this now? Can you hear it? I know, we can, we can use it. <laughs> it's, uh, sorry, I didn't uh... I, I, need to, I need to turn it off. 
about that, Michelle. Okay, but, but but maybe we can use it. So you're talking about a, a leader, like the, like a ringing ringing the bell, right? It's like, yeah, it's like that, like like what just happened. Like I, you didn't expect that, right? You didn't right. expect a call to come in in the middle of a podcast. Like he opened himself up. He was vulnerable, and he didn't expect it all. Absolutely, it was like a, my heart hurts for, for him. Yeah, my, my heart goes out to, to to him because he took a risk. Yeah, and uh, it didn't work out for him. And uh, um, so, so, and I think if we work with people on vulnerability, this is absolutely something that's going to come up. And uh, so, so to your question, is there is there too much? I think we we need to embrace sort of a game or a dance between vulnerability and trust. Mm -hmm. because one of the myths around vulnerability is I need to absolutely trust you before I can open up but the opening up is what creates trust exactly it's like the chicken and the egg oh yeah it's like <laughs> no I really love the metaphor of a dance and the question is yeah what is first is it the is it the opening up or is it the you know sense of trust and so I'm thinking we need to be good at both. We need to be able to read the signals of trust. You know, Brenner speaks about the um, pellets in a jar, you know, like, uh, like, you know, you're noticing people around you, you know, they, they remember the name of your parents or they remember your birthday or they call you your name. They remember the conversation you had last time. And there's, a, there's some clue about attention that people pay that might be, a good signal that the bill that the, the the trust has some foundation and i think we need to be looking much more careful about what are the people around me that are showing the potential for trust and then i can try opening up and see if the reciprocity comes back and if it does then i try to open up a little bit more understanding that's going to build trust even more and so it's it's kind of like trust vulnerability, trust, vulnerability, opening up, trust, opening up, trust. And the, so it's kind of like we built on each other. And, uh, and I think that, you know, when we, uh, when we are too vulnerable, without checking, do we have all the signals? And especially in a team where, you know, like having a trust in a team is an absolute, I don't know, impossibility almost, because you cannot be open with everybody at the same time to the same extent. It's so intimate. So, so we can find some common denominator of the trust in the group, but we need to be reciprocal to that denominator with our vulnerability. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Yeah, I think you are. And, and, and to, to build on what you're saying, I think that you can be vulnerable in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think opening up with what truly matters to you, for example, in the case of a leader um, or what moves you or telling a story, maybe from, you know, your earlier years or something like that. There are ways to, I think, be vulnerable and, and build up to a moment where you can be more, you can be vulnerable about mistakes or, mm -hmm. or expose things that you might be ashamed of. But it's like you, you, you start out in, in with a vulnerability that's, empowering and then right. you can go to a vulnerability that's a little riskier that's personal because, yeah. yeah because this the the space will allow for it 
Yeah, and when you speak about, I love that, the empowering vulnerability. Michelle, I don't know about your experience, but it's all about asking questions. Because asking questions in a, in a workplace is a vulnerable thing. You know, like, like, like the open questions that we work with in coaching. Uh, like, like, tell me a story about this. And the ability to listen is vulnerability because when I am a leader and I'm asking somebody, you know, tell me a story about what happened in this, in this time when you were locked in a, in a COVID for three weeks with, with five children in your house, you know, tell me about that. Uh, allows me as a leader to get touched yeah. and get emotional. And so I don't have to necessarily say anything. I, I can just ask the question, I can react to the question and I can show my emotional reaction. And what I wanna say is what I am now seeing as a, as a trick that vulnerability plays is that sometimes we show vulnerability that's absolutely in dissonance with our role. Mm -hmm. So when I am a leader of an organization, people are looking at me as a role. I am a symbol of that culture, of those values, of that, uh, you know, of that logo, if you will, of that organization. And only then people see me as a person. But first, I am the role. And if my vulnerability uh, doesn't confirm what people expect from me in that role, it's going to be counterproductive. That's not something I learned from Brennan, but I'm noticing that in my practice that sometimes because vulnerability is such a big word, everybody's trying to be vulnerable about, guys, I don't know what to do, like admitting. But, but sometimes you just cannot afford to say that. If you're smiling, because you know what I mean. You know, like, 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 please admit that you don't know, you know, show your imperfections. No, please, you cannot do that. Because yeah. people are looking up to you for strength and for support and for leadership. And if you are not aware of the requirements of your role and you yeah. use vulnerability, it will backfire. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking of, of several different uh, experiences I've had with big events, you know, and um, that line of being, you know, a leader, being really honest about what's going on. You know, how much do you share and how much do you, you know, because it's like, this is the person, this is the captain of the ship we're all on. And you want you want to hear that they are human but you want to hear that they know what they're doing. They, they, right. They're, they're right. at the helm, you know, and we're all right. on the ship together. So I just had to laugh at some of the experiences I've had in the past with working with, with vulnerability. Um, but I think that it is better to risk going too far than to not step into vulnerability at all. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And, and we need to make mistakes in order to be able to calibrate. Otherwise, we never dare, right? It's uh, it's like with everything else we try for the first time. We don't know where the boundaries are, and so so to me, and and maybe the work for the coaches is how do we build the inner motivation for people to actually believe that this is a good thing? You know, it sucks. It's not a pleasant feeling to be vulnerable, and and we hide from it all our lives. So how do we find the inner motive for a client to say, "Gee, it's something I really like to do." Yeah. How, you know, like, like, how do we create interest in exploring that vulnerability can be a connection tool as opposed to a protection? Well, you know, now that you mentioned connection tool, I know with this um, 
strong interest in diversity and inclusion right now, especially in, in North America, sharing stories, being vulnerable about what my experience is, what I'm afraid to bring, what part of myself am I afraid to bring to work? Um, they're creating connections, they're breaking down barriers, they're, you know, this kind of storytelling with vulnerability, probably in my opinion, is the most effective tool for mm -hmm. working on inclusion, because you start to think of these, these, these people that you were maybe uh, judging as a kind of what, and you hear their story, and now they're a who, and they're a who that has a lot more in common with you than you thought. And it becomes a moment of shared humanity that, that, that transforms everything, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any, any more powerful tool in my opinion for that than vulnerable storytelling. Right, yeah. And uh, yeah, I just feel completely overwhelmed <laughs> with what you just said. And uh, uh, it also, you know, it brings back this standing alone, you know, this, this courage to stand up and say, well, I don't have this kind of experience. My experience is completely different. And, you know, for that, to, for people to be able to do this, I don't think they are uh, equipped in many ways. We just, because we, it's a new thing for us as a culture uh, to speak about taboos, right? It's a, it's a new thing. It's something that, you know, needs a new vocabulary and it needs new sentences and it needs new tools. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, you know, as uh, J.K. Rowling said in Harry Potter, our words are the most incredible source of magic, right? It's like if we have, uh, if we have enough knowledge that we could stand up and we could use some words and we could uh, kind of understand our, our way how we communicate it, we would be much better at it. But my, my experience is that people are willing to stand up, but then they are clumsy in how they express themselves. I love and that. And it completely kills the, uh, the impact. I love that because, well, so, so I don't know if I'm, I'm in alignment with what I'm gonna say now. It's like, we are clumsy. We are incredibly clumsy. I think that we have to be able to accept and embrace clumsiness to find our way through this. Mm -hmm. and, and what I'm finding is that when people are triggered by, by clumsiness, it shuts the whole thing down. It's like, oh my God, I tried something. It didn't work. Or I just exposed how ignorant I am about this. And there's a, a, a negative reaction rather than compassion and, and, mm -hmm. and a kind of a desire to educate each other in, in, in these things. Um, and then the space shuts down and it, it no longer feels safe. Mm. So it's, it's, you know, I would love that if we could normalize clumsiness, clumsiness. Yeah. you know, and I, I might, I might offend you and I'm sorry, but, but I'm only going to find my way through this <laughs> if, if you're willing to, to, to deal with my clumsiness. Right. Yeah. yeah. I love that. That's, uh, that's vulnerability in, in its pure form, right? Uh, it's, uh, I don't know how to say it, but this is what's happening for me, and it's absolutely, utterly real. Yeah. 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 Wow. Okay. Let's see. Another question. Um, what about like what? What are tips you have? You know, after working so so long with all of this, you know, courage and like, what tips do you have for people in in order to have braver conversations? more courageous conversations with clients, with family members. What tips do you have? 
<laughs> I think we just talked about it. It's a, it's a you know, be awkward. <laughs> really, really, so why well, willing to be awkward? Maybe saying that up front, right? No, gonna... I think the first thing, first thing is, is to realize that we can have a conversation. And uh, in that realization, I, I kind of put also, ah, I need to have one. You know, like like people push it away. We all push it away. We say it's just gonna. It's not a good time now. It's the whole family is gonna be there, so I don't want to talk to her now. And and so so notice when we push things away and let them kind of fly instead of facing them. That's I think a first step. Like maybe even I would uh, you know if I work with intensely with the client, I'd say something like, "It is your work now to go out and look for opportunities." to have hard conversations, actively search them out. Oh, wow. Make a list, make a like, like, let's put some energy into it. Make a list of 10 people you need to have a hard conversation with and tell me when you're gonna do that. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> so, so it's kind of like bringing another, another level of intention to what's really happening when I don't have these conversations. What is happening as a result of that? What's happening with me? How is that putting me in comfort as opposed to building my own courage? Right. And there's nothing like taking action for reducing our fear. Like yeah. the example of you approaching the woman on the train. Once you do that, you go, wow, you know, it, it, it feels so good to have done that. And it wasn't that hard. And it, it breaks down a little bit the fear uh, to do it again. Yeah, right, exactly. And, and, and that's often the feedback we get from the clients. They say, you know what, it wasn't, you know, it was such a huge relief, not only on my side, but also on the colleague's side, you know, it, it, you know, this is, this might not be a great example, but it just comes to me. Uh, it's this, you know, sometimes people have a lot of performers in their teams. And there is this fear about, you know, if I let him go, you know, this is a hard time, he's got three kids and uh, you know, I'm going to have to put his work to somebody else's shoulders and it's going to take a while before we find somebody. Or, so let's develop him some more. Let's find him a coach or something. And there's this dwelling in non-performance that's happening. And it has such a poisonous, toxic impact on everybody in the team. And, uh, you know, sometimes as a result of coaching conversations, the leader starts to think about what if I take the action, what would it take? And it's really the hard conversation with the low performing employee to say, this is not for you. And, and it just doesn't work. And, and let's find a different way for you to do what you love to do. And for me to have a person who fits. Yeah. And then I get a phone call the next day. Wow, it was like a relief on both sides. And, <laughs> and people are like, finally, you know. So, so right. sometimes right. noticing the dwelling that we have in some things that, that we just don't want to, you know, and we bring up excuses like, I want to give him more chance or I know it's in him, you know. We just need to wake up his potential. And yeah. Deep down, it's already a relationship that's already broken. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I think we often feel like we're protecting people from something. And actually, in Spanish, we say it's un flaco favor. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, when, when I've had an experience in the past where someone came to me and said, well, I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want to hurt you. And yes. I thought, if you had told me, I could have done something. I could have chosen something different. 
And so I felt like you weren't, you weren't protecting me. You were protecting yourself. You were afraid of the reaction I might have, but I would have loved to have had the truth and been able to change and inter change myself or interact with the truth. Mm -hmm. so and that's absolutely on the mark. That, that, and then that, this, is a, this is a very known concept that if we try to protect other people, it's really our vulnerability, which means our insecurity about, am I, am I be able to control the reaction? Am I, am I gonna be able to deal with your reaction if something might come that is emotional or it's overwhelming or it's not up to me? And, and I think that the skill that we need to start looking at is how do I, how do I, live, how do I live in empowerment to other people? And also how do I, work with accountability for you know what am i responsible for and what you are responsible for and there is the distinction about i am i need to take responsibility for my impact so i need to think about how i say it hence you know my clumsiness or my non-clumsiness but i cannot control your emotions and i cannot take responsibility for your emotions and uh, I think that's that's a level of wisdom that we all need to grow into us in, in order to really apply vulnerability as a connecting issue between yeah. us and people. Yeah, and it also has me think about the powerful question you can ask yourself. I know for me, you know, I'm a, I am a people pleaser. I think that's a big saboteur I have. I want to be liked. And I worry, oh, what will happen in this relationship if I say something? that could possibly damage the ties we have and you know what's more important. But I think a really powerful question to ask yourself is what would I want if I were in the shoes of that person? Yeah, that's I, would want, I would want the truth. I would want constructive feedback. I would want to know if an entire team is not happy with me. Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't want to be kept in the dark. So I think it's really good to, to put yourself in the person's shoes and ask that question. Okay, how about a question about because a lot of people that listen to this uh, podcast are coaches and varying, you know, some of them are just getting started. Some of them have been working for some time. What advice would you have for coaches as an entrepreneur, like to help them be more efficient or get more clients, things that worked for you earlier in your career that might be good tips for coaches getting started or coaches who've been mm -hmm. working for just a couple of years? Yeah, this is, a, this is a question that for me stems from what am I learning in my almost 20 years career as a, as a coach? You know, what, what, what is the key thing that I'd like to say to my youngest, you know, early junior kind of coach in this world? And it's, uh, it's just think about learning to trust. And I know it sounds a little bit like a cliche. Of course, you know, like if you talk to a marketing person, they will say, well, have your website, think about your target group, you know, start, uh, start with people who really trust you and who are curious and, and build your self, coaching self-esteem, you know, have some successes that you can celebrate, uh, you know, be passionate about how you talk about your work. These are, these are sort of the things that you can read in every book. But what I am, you know, reflecting about is there is so much work in the world that needs to be done where we coaches have the right tools and the right position on the market. That there is always going to be enough clients. And it sounds, it sounds unbelievable, right? And uh, at the same time, 
you know, the, 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 the way I generate clients, maybe that's the best way to do it, is being really passionate about what this work can do. And, and not doing coaching, but be it everywhere I go. Mm. So it's, it's kind of like this coaching stand, you know, how people feel when they are with you, when you're at the party or where you shop in the supermarket or where you talk to a to an attendant at the parking lot you know like you know what's the human experience people have when they meet you how do you how do you are who you are as a person because then people start noticing and say what is it that you do and then when you start talking about what you do people go oh that makes sense you know so it's kind of like it's not about what we do it's showing us showing ourselves, showing up in a way we believe we all need to show up for this to be a better world. This is so beautiful. I just have to underline your words. You know, what is the human experience when people are around you or in your presence? That's such a beautiful way to put it because then you're inspiring and engaging everywhere you go and you spark people's curiosity. Mm -hmm. And then from there, maybe you end up working with someone, but you haven't, you know, given them your card or sent no. them to your webpage. Yeah. You've shown them who you are. And, and that's another thing that you say that's really important. It, you know, if we change who we are slightly because you might be a potential client, that's a completely different intention. What I'm talking about is how do I practice being who I am everywhere? Right. Even if it's an attendant at the gas station, I, you know, like this kind of learning or wisdom didn't come to me just out of the blue. It's, it's, a, it's a years of noticing how people react and, you know, what are the questions that follow after that reaction? I remember many, many, many years ago, I was on the bus traveling from ski trip uh, from Switzerland to, or, or France to Czech. And in the middle of the night, we stopped at this gas station and everybody ran out to the toilets. And I felt like I need a snack. And I'm, I'm seeing this older lady, uh, you know, uh, standing at the cash register and I'm, and I'm buying my banana and my, my bar and, uh, and the juice and I'm putting it all there. And, and she's kind of sad looking. So I start talking to her. Like, you know, what's that like to be on a night shift like that? And, you, you know, like people hurry up to the toilet and then they go back on the bus. And, and she starts telling me about how lonely she feels and how she wanted to get uh, a job so that she doesn't feel lonely. But the job actually feels more lonely because of this. And we had this conversation in like three minutes. And then, then she gives me my change back. She grabs my hand and she says, you just made my day. And so it doesn't, and then I am, then I'm walking away and I'm smiling because I have this impact from the conversation. And some guy on the bus says, I have been noticing you all week. Every time I look at you, you have a smile on your face. So people notice how we are. Don't underestimate that. And, the, and, and finding that impact in us I think it's the best business card we can have. I agree. Yeah. Wow. Um, what about a big challenge, something, a place where you failed and learned something that could serve listeners? 
big challenge? Is that what well, you're asking? I guess they're two different words. Something that was really challenging that you did and failed and learned from it. Hmm. And failed. Yeah. Failed. Or, I mean, maybe uh, failed isn't the right word, but didn't, it's kind of like the example of the, the client you had where he was really vulnerable and it didn't work. Like something mm -hmm. like that and what you learned from it. Hmm. Um, hmm, I, don't, I don't know if something comes up right now. Uh, <laughs> I think it, for me, it has something to do with uh, really looking at my expectations of myself. It, because I have a tendency to run into something that's really exciting and then setting up all these success measures. And then of course, in time, I don't reach them. And uh, so, so that's a rep repetitive pattern <laughs> for me. It's like, uh, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, just to give you a smile on your face. Uh, I don't know if it's a failure, but it's, it's one of those where I have a high expectations. I learn. I, three years ago, I bought a horse and it was like a tree, dream come true. Yeah, because, uh, you know, like who buys a horse at this age? And, <laughs> and uh, you know, all these saboteur things start to come up. And then I said, I'm just going to take a step. And I'm just going to hire a, a coach and I'm going to learn how to ride. And, and then for a year, I walked and I dropped it and I just couldn't make myself lope or canter, as they say in English. And and I just felt myself so incapable and so small and so clumsy. Here's the word again, you know, like I'm never going to learn it. And, you know, then, you know, I, I use learning how to ride as a beautiful and, and absolutely majestic metaphor of how I work with my own fear, my own boundaries, my own presence, ability to relax, you know, listen to my body, you know, ability to make connections. This is all there. And so, um, you know, in this non-loping years where I, you know, like every freaking day I'm thinking maybe today I will lope and I'm not. That is like horrible experience. But, uh, you know, like now I'm loping. And I remember when I started doing that for the first time, the tears started running down my cheeks. And that's the feeling that we all get when we overcome an abyss that we are afraid of and uh, so um to me you know like anytime i i feel this kind of disappointment of not being able to do something yet or the yet is important i need to think okay how about reshuffling my expectations how about looking at you know how about looking at my experience with some gratitude you know, how, how about really giving points to what really works? But it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. And it takes sometimes a coaching conversation that I have with my coach to, to notice that for me, you know, like it's hard for me. So yeah. that's kind of, these are the yeah. failures that I often have. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes me think of it, have a couple of things. Like one, sometimes the need to redefine success um, because we, like you said, we've had, we have expectations and we say, well, this is what success looks like. And I imagine that there are other aspects uh, on the journey that you discover that kind of help you redefine success, like the bond you create with your horse or you know, the, the other things you didn't expect that you get along the journey. 
and and along i think along any journey towards what we thought was the goal and success we're allowed to stop and redefine and change mm -hmm. it all mm -hmm. and I, I would love to know like if your horse could talk and is it a, <laughs> is it a he or a she it's a she <laughs> if she were here right now and she could talk what would she say about you she kind of looked at you and she said she's learning <laughs> Let her do her thing. She's yeah. learning. She's coming yeah, along. She had this southern uh, U.S. southern accent. She, she <laughs> she's, she's just learning. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, so speaking of learning, do you what? What would you recommend to listeners in terms of books or pod, other podcasts, resources that would be really good on the subjects um, that we've covered in this mm. talk? Yeah, or even subjects that we haven't covered. Anything you recommend? Yes, it's. Uh, I, I really like the work that uh, Su Susan David does on uh, emotional agility. Mm. I think that's the name of the book, but she's also a TED speaker, so I'd recommend to, to listen to her. You know what she taught as a girl in South Africa, what she learned as a as a girl in South Africa about emotions. And how she took that learning into her PhD and uh, and Harvard, where she teaches. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful story, and it's also a beautiful work she does. So she's a great resource that I look at recently. Uh, I also would uh, recommend for coaches to look at the work of Julie Diamond, who works with power, mm -hmm. and how power is something we don't talk about. Here I am, Michelle, looking at the subject we don't talk about and being attracted to them. So, you know, like shame and vulnerability eight years ago was a taboo, now everybody talks about it. So I'm now looking at power. Ah, you know, how does power work? And what do we need to know about that? And yeah. so that's, uh, that's, that's really an exciting topic. And then- uh, We'll have to have, Iveta, we'll have to have another podcast where we talk about power. Okay. <laughs> Very okay. Just like, look out for that. Another and you know, and you know, this is funny because I am in the process of learning, and and as you know, we best learn when we teach, right? And uh, mm -hmm. so, so I am uh, kind of finding opportunities to talk to people about what I'm learning, and uh, I cannot believe the impact it has on people. Everybody goes like, "Wow, that's something I'd like to know more about," because we live in a hierarchical society. And we have power and we use it or we don't use it or we overuse it. And uh, being an effective individual mm -hmm. and knowing what our power is in a certain context, it's a gift. Yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, if we can add that to our coaching, uh, you know, like, like this notion of power and, and be educated about it. So I'm, I'm really excited about this new phenomenon in my life that, that's coming up. And then, and like a quick, quick thing before you go on, it I just had this flash of how people work in leadership with horses, and that that there's a sensitivity with leadership and power that that animals can can sense into. Um, so that's also really cool, right? To to work with animals around power and and leadership. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's part of the experience that you have with her. What what's your horse's name? Her name is Lara. And I do coach my clients in her presence. Uh, she becomes the coach and I become the, the guide. And uh, you're absolutely right. And I, you know, like it, it, it also connects with authenticity, uh, uh, authenticity. 
so so if we pretend that we have power but we actually don't that's incongruence that the horse immediately reacts to and then that's really visible right away and uh, people are a little, little scared to to have somebody else than a human being to give them that feedback right? <laughs> right. because the horse has no idea who you are and just kind of point right to it but what i was going to say is that uh, there is an also interesting input about how we apply pressure in um, you know to influence people and events and environment you know with what pressure we actually go into things and what i am learning by writing is that what is the smallest possible pressure that i can apply and still get things moving Mm. It's the, you know, going back to midlife and saving energy and working with it uh, in an effective way. It's really about how do I find the easy point? How do I find the access to, to a place where I can just gently put something in motion? And it does, instead of going and enforcing things. So to me, that's an amazing source of learning. And, uh, and for that, I'm reading books uh, from horsemen who work on uh, power and how to use the power because they describe it in a, uh, in a horse human way. But I'm thinking, how can we apply this in our lives as humans? How can we find the point of lowest possible pressure and still get things in moving? I, I love what you're saying because it takes me to the metaphor of kind of managing our finances. We're always looking to how to spend less in certain areas. And it's like, this is like energy management. How do I spend? How do I, where do I save? Where am I overspending? You know, uh, where am I spending my, my energy when uh, it's actually not something aligned with my values? It's mm -hmm. like thinking of energy as currency mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and being much more yeah. mindful of, of how we're spending it. And then, uh, you know, you're asking me about what people want to use as a resource or yeah. uh, inspiration. It is my experience that sometimes we just need to be in duality with what's coming up. And what I mean by that is we don't need to be targeted on something. <coughs> we just need to notice because there is so much on social media that, you know, like the, the big algorithm can bring your attention to. And just notice your curiosity to what you are attracted to and explore it because that's where the impulse is. And it certainly agrees with something inside of you that needs some attention. So uh, I'd say if you're looking for impulses, do just that. Uh, you know, instead of sitting and saying, well, where do I look next and what's my interest? Because I, I find it that people find it hard to, yeah. to be that intentional. And uh, so, so, so opening up articles and watching videos or getting engaged or, or signing up for a class, you know, like, uh, like I have a client who just signed for an improv class and she moved in her leadership miles in just three classes of improv. And, and it was because she just had, they had some party at work and they had this improv guy doing some exercises with them and she fell in love with that. So these are kind of the impulses that, yeah. If you notice they are agreeing with us, follow them a little bit more. And because not every book's for you, mm. you might not have the right time to read them. 
So it's great to have recommendations, but it's more about, you know, what attracts you? you know, how, do you how do you know it attracts you? you know, what happens with you when you read this article? Yeah, yeah, I love that you brought Im impro or Im improv because that has been a secret sauce in all of my trainings. I learned with Sue Walden many years ago, this master of improv applied to leadership. And I put a little improv in everything I do. And I would say it is part of the secret sauce because people really want to play and enjoy while they're learning and they want to be surprised. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's playing, but playing with, with meaning, you know, playing at the end of the play, there's some aha moment and they've, they've gotten to laugh their way to their aha moment. So uh, I, I love improv. And, and I this, love is, improv. Uh, this is Michelle, this is, um, this is, this is where I value our relationship because you brought me to that, you know, that playfulness you have with applying improv. When we first met uh, professionally, it was in a, in a CTI leadership program. And, 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 and I remember that lightness and smile and sort of like a happiness shining all over you when we were mirroring each other and, and playing with improv exercises. And so, yeah, you, yeah, you do that and you've done it ever since I know you. <laughs> That's right. We, we go way back, Iveta, and I yes. go way back. Uh, and one thing I want to add to what you've said that I think is really important. I, I'm also a big fan of following impulses and using your heart's desire, your impulses, your bliss to, to lead you to the next thing rather than where will I make money or, you know, what should I do? And my daughter has sometimes asked me, you know, how, how do I know, mom, when I'm, when I'm, you know, researching a bunch of stuff? And, and there's contradictory information and how do I know it's true? There's so much information out there. And I say, you know, trust what resonates inside of you. Find the truth by feeling what feels, what, what, what resonates as true inside your body, because it's true that now there's so much information out there. I think we have to become more and more connected with the guide we have inside. Yeah. To find, yeah. to find our way. Yes. It's like I, I just had a conversation with the client yesterday and he was telling me he's, he's, he's thinking about buying a lodge in the mountains. And he says, well, now I have these two locations and one has this is right in the middle of the town. You have to take the bus to the slope, but there's all these amenities and bars and restaurants. And the other location is like secluded in the woods, but it's like eight kilometers away, you know, and you will have to drive every time. And so even when people talk about choices, the resonance is really revealing. Right? You just need to point your mirror there and say, well, where, where is that resonance? You already have your decision. Exactly, right? It's so funny. As an, as an observer, it's so obvious in those moments. You're like, your mind is already made up. You can hear through your tone of voice and you know how you're speaking about each option. It's very funny. But it's good. Sometimes people just need help thinking out loud. Yeah. And the coach just holds up a mirror for a moment and they see it. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so we're coming to an end and I, and I wanted to do whatever creative thing you want to do. Uh, cause as I told you before, I always end the podcast with something fun, whether it's dancing or sh sharing something or something. <laughs> I, I certainly would like to dance, but, uh, no music. So, you know, one thing that, uh, I want to add to the audience is a part of the authenticity you know, that people like working with you is that you can surprise them with some level of playfulness or craziness. Mm -hmm. And what I do sometimes is I, I sing, you know, like I have this, uh, uh, I have this little figure of a saboteur, 
that I bought in Ikea. It's like a saboteur, like a- very, That's a very cute saboteur, by the way. Yeah, well, he's got a little mice sitting behind him. I don't know if you can see it. There's like can see, yeah. And uh, sometimes when I work with client, you know, and then he's in the snow, like, uh, I don't know, I'm not enough, no, no, no. And I go, no, 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 no. So for those people who can't see what's happening, she's holding up and, and thrashing around a very cute stuffed animal. Na, 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 na. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's great just to be yourself and don't worry about yeah. what's going to happen. You know, you don't have to be professional all the time. You can just kind of say, and, uh, and uh, it lifts me up. Yeah, but it completely changes the energy in the in the work with. The yeah, other I think you're you're right. It's it, it breaks up, especially you know when when somebody is stuck in a saboteur loop, something surprising and playful like that will break it. It's like you they're like on a in a you know kind of broken record mode, and you and you you break the pattern with something yeah. like that, and suddenly they 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 wake up and go, wait a minute, wait, what just happened? Yeah. And they have to examine. Oh wow, that's right. What am I telling myself? Yeah. And it's, you know, again, going back to the impro, it's this uh, cheekiness that we can apply. So, so, you know, another example that I want to share is that recently some client had asked me, you know, like when we sit down, we start working and then it's like a serious gentleman and he says, so how are you, Iveta? And I'm thinking, how do I mitigate this, this, this heaviness? And, and I'm like, Almost heaven, West Virginia, Rich <laughs> Mountain, Shenandoah River, and <laughs> it's like a, it's like what do you do with that? You know, you have right, to exactly you have to kind of push everything away and start anew with the client. But there is a shift, and uh, and I want to remind all the coaches that are listening to this podcast: have fun creating shifts because you benefit from it and your client does and certainly the space in which you're creating is new yeah that's that's so good it's like a, uh, another uh tip is to have props and things around yeah. you that you can play with i used to travel to all my trainings with with balls you mm -hmm. know because when a ball shows up everybody connects to their inner their inner yeah, child and I, you know what I've done on my it's not here right now but I have a, a little Waldo do you know the where's Waldo books where you you so I had a, a I ordered a Waldo online and I would place them in different places behind me and in moments where you know we were waiting for people to come back from a break in a training or whatever I'd say okay people where's Waldo like find Waldo back behind <laughs> me and, and little things like that yes, little, yes. sometimes I'll have play mobile toys and and i'll and i'll have i'll put it right up to the camera and i'll say so this is you what advice would you give yourself right a little little people so i think that there are a lot of fun playful things that uh, are very powerful they're surprising and people are hungry for you know something something different mm -hmm. okay well so thank you so much for being with me one last thing if you had to have like if you had a billboard that was just like a one-liner piece of advice for people hmm. what would you say on there will be you know there's different signs for different contexts but in the context of the conversation we just had i'd say something like dare to trust dare to something trust like that. thank you so much Yvette. i hope that we can get together on a on a later date and do a podcast on power or whatever cool thing you're up to at the time uh, and keep Keep running with Lara, with your beautiful <laughs> horse. And I look forward to 
to when our paths cross again. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to see you and speak about what we both love so much. Truly my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Wow, that was wonderful, Iveta. Uh, dare to trust. Dare to trust ourselves. Dare to trust each other. That was a major theme throughout our conversation. And it's very present for me now. I just spoke with a positive psychologist about the difference between who we want to be and who we're actually being. And I had a recent experience with this because my mom came to visit for about three weeks here in Spain. And I had all these ideas of the loving daughter I wanted to be, uh, how much I wanted to give back to this woman who's given me so much. And I found that in reality, there were a lot of moments where I felt irritated or disappointed and then disappointed in who I was being. And I loved the metaphor this psychologist gave me. She said, you need to treat your feelings like guests in your house. You know, some of them are wonderful and some of them are not so great, but they're all in your house and you have to accept them. So I am processing that, right? The imperfections and the, the things about us that we don't love, but they're part of who we are. Another statement that Iveta made that I'd heard before, but it's just so powerful is the quality of the intervention depends on the quality of the intervener. And it's true that, you know, when you're training someone, when you're in a conversation, where you're coming from, what's going on inside of you is so much more important than what you say or do because it is expressed through your body language, through your tone. The quality of what happens outside depends completely on what's going on inside of us. We can't hide it, right? Like everybody can feel what's authentic, what real love feels like, and when someone's trying to, to do something but it's actually not flowing from a, an authentic place. And speaking of authenticity, you're welcome to write me with any comments, questions about the content of this podcast or recommend somebody for me to interview. In two weeks, we'll have the, the next episode in Spanish. And if you're bilingual, uh, join me then. And if not, in four weeks, the next one in English. Thank you for being here. This was Leadership Game Changers. Mm -hmm.